Another question for you. If you were to ask the people around you this statement, I wonder what they would say. I always do fill in the blank. And what would they say? If you were to talk to the people around you and say, all right, let me ask you a question. What is something I'm always doing? I asked this of my kids yesterday. My oldest, Connor, he answered. I said, Connor, what's something that daddy's always doing? And I'm thinking like prayer, reading the Bible, loving on my wife and my kids. Like there's so many good answers he could have given. And you know what he said? He said, work. I'm like, seriously? Like not that, I mean a little punch to the gut, but whatever. And then I said, well, what's something else? What's something that we always do? The second one I'm happy and proud of. So you need to know this, though. Everybody has this, right? We have, like, the nightly routines where we, we get our PJs on, we brush our teeth, we pray, we do our stories, and then we basically go to bed. But something that we've instituted, I've instituted, this is a dad thing, is we'll lay in bed after we do all of that. I'll pull out my phone, we'll get on YouTube, and we'll watch, like, an hour of Dude Perfect before we go to bed. It's so much fun. And by the response, you don't know what Dude Perfect is. So go home, do yourself a favor, and watch an episode of Dude Perfect. It's a blast. So he's like, Dad, we always watch Dude Perfect. And I'm like, yeah, that's my boy. That's what we do. But that's an interesting question to ask, isn't it? I always am doing what? And what's interesting is you might say one thing, but then you ask the people around you, what do you think that I'm always doing? Am I always encouraging? Am I always complaining? Am I always helping? We talked about helpers and fixers last week. Am I always there? Am I always missing? Am I always, what am I always doing? What would people around you say to fill in that blank? I am always doing what? I want to show you an example of somebody that was always doing something. This will help us tie in where we're going with not your average king. Acts chapter 9 verse 36 Early church, a lot of followers of Jesus are starting to figure out kind of what we want to answer on Sunday dinner is, well, how do I live this, this, this faith out? So here in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. Can we pause there for a second? I don't feel like I can move past that until we at least call that one out. A disciple named Tabitha, yet for some reason, we also need to know that her real name is actually Dorcas doesn't have anything to do with this morning, but it would be weird if we didn't draw attention to that. So in Joppa, there's the disciple and her name, it was Tabitha. Look at what she was always doing. She was always, say always, she was always doing good and helping the poor. Now, if you're going to be mentioned in scripture, that's a great way to be mentioned in scripture. That here she is, a follower of Jesus, and what is she always doing? She's always helping others. She's always helping the poor. She's always doing good. She's always there. She's always serving. She's always looking for ways to help. Always there. Always helping. Always serving. Now we've been saying that we're most like Christ when we serve. He came to serve, not to be served. Not, so, not your average king, of course. So if we want to follow in his footsteps, if we want to become more like Christ, if, I think that's what she was asking herself. How do I become more like Christ? Well, that means I need to serve, so I'm always going to be doing good. I'm always going to be serving. I'm always going to be helping. But here's what happens. We find ourselves in this really tense space because on one side, we want to be like Christ, who's the ultimate servant. We want to be like him. We want to have a heart like him. We want to serve like him, love like him, so on and so on. So here we are trying to live that way, but the world that we live in is a very selfish world. In fact, we are 
just by nature, very selfish. Spend some time with toddlers and you'll see. We don't have to be taught to be selfish, right? We think about ourselves. We do things for ourselves. We promote ourselves. And so we get caught in this space of, I want to be a servant. I want to be selfless. But the world that I live in not only upholds, teaches, but values self. That's a, that's a hard place to be in, isn't it? I want to have a servant's heart. I want to be selfless. But my nature in the world I live in is very selfish. In fact, I want to show you this. So we read out of Acts 9. This is not from the Bible. This is out of Forbes magazine, an article. They have a lot of great stuff, but this one I thought shed light into the world we currently live in. According to an article in Forbes, quote, self-promotion is a leadership and political skill. I would argue that it's a skill. I think it's innate is a political skill that is critical to master in order to navigate the realities of the workplace and position you for success. Anybody see a difference between Acts 9 and Forbes magazine? <laughs> Just a little bit. Now, I'm not saying everything in there is going to be wrong, but it sheds a lot of light. It gives us a big glimpse into what our world values. Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Our world says self-promotion is a skill that is critical. You must master it. You must be great at self-promotion or you have no chance of success in life. Those are very different, aren't they? And here we are in the middle trying to figure out, well, I still want to be successful in life. I want to be great. We talked about that last week. But I want to have a heart like Jesus. I want to have a servant's heart. But I'm drawn to being all about me and selfish and self-promotion and self-centeredness, but I'm also trying to become more like Jesus every day. So that's the tension we're gonna wrestle with this morning. And it starts with this prayer. You're gonna hear me talk about this every single week between now and Easter. It's the servant's prayer. It says, Lord, help me to be ready and willing. First key parts, ready and willing, open-handed. Lord, help me to be ready and willing to serve and the courage to follow through with joy, right? We're not gonna be grumpy servants. It's not out of obligation, we're saying, no, I want to serve out of a place of joy. So help me to be ready and willing to serve, the courage to follow through with joy, and help me to see, and you're talking about like today, in every moment, in every decision, help me to see how you're calling me to serve today. I'm not saying that's gonna be the answer, but I believe in the power of prayer, so that at least directs our heart in the right posture towards a heart of, that's chasing after Jesus versus a heart that's chasing after success the way our world would describe it. So let's pray for that today. Jesus, we come before you, recognizing you are the servant, that you came to serve, not to be served, that you served us first, you went first, you loved us first. So Jesus, we want to figure out how to follow after you. In a world that is pulling us towards self-promotion and selfishness, we want to figure out how to walk through life like you, selfless and with a servant's heart. So Jesus, that's our prayer. Help us to be ready and willing to serve. Give us the courage to follow through with joy and help each of us individually to see specifically how you're calling us to serve today and each day after. In Jesus' name, amen. So if that's the tension we're wrestling with. The question we wanna answer is, how do we get motivated to have a servant's heart? Because if it's our natural tendency to live in a self-promoting world and to be selfish, understand it's gonna take a lot of work to be selfless. I go back and think of Tabitha here. It had to have been exhausting to live out that life. Remember what she was always doing? She was always doing good. She was always helping others. That's exhausting. 
right? It sounds great, but it's exhausting to always be there for somebody else and to always put somebody else first and to always be available and to always help and go on. That's an exhausting life. It's a whole lot easier to just say, I'm just going to care about me and, and, and take care of me and think about me. So we have to pay attention to, well, what motivates us then? What drives us to serve? What's, the, what's compelling us to have a servant's heart? Because it can't just be, well, I feel like it. Because there's going to be plenty of times where you don't feel like it. So what compels somebody like Tabitha? What compels somebody like Jesus to live a servant's life and to chase after a servant's heart? Well, let's look at it. If you got your Bibles, I'm going to blow through several of these. We're going to land in Matthew 20. But I want you to see what Jesus is always doing. As a servant, as the perfect example of a servant and a servant's heart, I want you to see what even he has a driver and a motivation to have that kind of heart. So we're going to end in Matthew 20, but let me blow through several of these real quick. See if you can find the commonality. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14. When Jesus landed and saw a huge crowd, a large crowd, he had, what's the word? Compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 15. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have had nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse along the way. Luke 7, when Jesus saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. Keep reading through the rest of that chapter. Really cool story, miracle of Jesus. Luke 10, it's a story, it's a parable. So he's not just showing it about himself. Now he's upholding the value of compassion. Probably a familiar story for many of you. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. That's the story of the good Samaritan. What's the common word? Compassion. You'll notice every time you see compassion, maybe not in that sentence, but in the coming sentences, you'll see an and. He had compassion and he did something. There was compassion and it moved him to do something. You have to understand that word compassion is a very important word. And it means a lot more than probably what you and I give it credit for. So if you're going to pick a favorite Greek word, which the New Testament was written in Greek, this is going to be your new favorite Greek word if you don't have one yet. It's mine. You ready? I know it's a little geeky but everybody needs a favorite Greek word. The Greek word for compassion is splagnitsomai. You know why it's my favorite now, don't you? Splagnitsomai. I want you to say it with me. Say splagnitsomai. You gotta get a little bit of stuff in your throat to do it right. Splagnitsomai. One more time, ready? Splagnitsomai. And splagnitsomai literally means your innermost bowels. Who's hungry for lunch? (laughs) That's what it literally means. It's your innermost part. It's the innermost bowel. So when you experience someone's hurt, when someone is in need and you have splagnitsomai, your insides hurt and are moved. It's not a, oh, that's too bad. I feel really sorry for him. Oh, no, your stomach churns and your stomach twists and your heart breaks. It's splagnitsomai. It's compassion. It moves you to do something. In this case, in Jesus' case, every time he had splagnitsomai, he was moved to serve. So I told you we'd end in Matthew 20, so that's where we're going to be. If you have your Bibles, spin, move over to Matthew chapter 20. Here's another example of Jesus having that, splagnitsomai and compassion. 
Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 9. If you want an A plus for church this morning, look back at verse 28 at some point. You'll see how it ties together. But we're going to start in verse 29, but you ought to read 28 sometime. Verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. That word mercy is going to be big. We're going to talk through it. So circle it, underline it, highlight it. We're coming back to it. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, louder, Lord, son of David, here it is again, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and he called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight Jesus had splagnitsoma. He had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Another example of Jesus having compassion and being moved to serve, moved to do something. And what we're going to do is we're going to use this as a case study for chasing after a servant's heart. To become more like Christ, remember it's not just Serving is something we do. No, serving is who we are. We are a servant. It's not just something we do to help. And here we see Jesus show us perfectly what a servant is like. Not just what they do, but what what a servant is like. What a servant's heart is like. And you'll notice there's three qualities to a servant. Humility, sacrifice, and love. Say them with me. Humility, sacrifice, and love. Remember those because we're going to walk through them. Because we see each of those in this story. Humility, sacrifice, and love. That's what it takes to be a servant is humility, sacrifice, and love. So let's start with that first one, humility. Understand the story. Jesus is leaving Jericho. And if you'll keep reading into the next chapter, Matthew 21, you'll see that Jesus is actually going towards Jerusalem. Now this is towards the very end of his ministry. So his next stop is basically the crucifixion. That's where he's headed. He's spent an incredible ministry of healings and teachings and helping. And here he has now set his sights to Jerusalem. I'm heading to the cross. And you could imagine the resolve that he would have had. Focused. This is why I came. This is my mission. I can't let anything else distract me or take me away from Jesus going to the cross for you and for me to take our sins away. So he's leaving to head there. And along the way, he's got this massive crowd following him that's all wanting to be around him and be near him, and they're all probably wanting or needing something. But he's focused. I'm headed to the cross. I'm headed to the cross. I'm headed to the cross. And he hears these two men start shouting, Jesus, Lord, have, what was the word? Mercy on us. Let's talk about mercy for a second. See, they were asking for mercy, and they got compassion. Understand the difference. Mercy is more of benevolence. It's still a good thing. They're saying, would you be kind to us? Would you help us? Would you, would you have a benevolent heart? Would you give us something? Help us. Notice, they asked for mercy twice, but at the end, Jesus didn't give them mercy. It said he had compassion on them. Splagnizomai is so much deeper, so much more moving than mercy. Both are good. They got a whole lot more than what they asked for. It was personal. It was meaningful. It was relational, as we're going to see. So that's what they were asking for. They called out, Jesus, help us. Be kind to us. Be nice to us. And what did everybody else do? What did the entire crowd do? They, they shushed them, didn't they? <laughs> Be quiet. Don't bother Jesus. Don't bother the teacher. 
Who do you think you are? You're an outcast. Don't speak up to him. And they cried out all the louder, Jesus, we need you. And here's where we see humility. Jesus did something that nobody else did in this moment. Let me read it. The crowd rebuked them, told them to be quiet. They shouted all the louder. Here it is, verse 32. Jesus stopped. He hasn't healed anybody yet. He hasn't said anything yet. He stopped. He just stopped. Just by stopping, he put somebody else ahead of him. Because again, he had a mission. He was, on, he was on path. He was on direction. He was, he was resolved in making it. And he stopped everything. He stopped his plans. He put his agenda on hold for these two men. He stopped. That's humility, is when you put somebody else's needs ahead of yours. When you put somebody else ahead of you. When you stop what you're doing for somebody else. That's humility. And understand, having compassion is inconvenient. There's nothing convenient about this interruption for Jesus. Again, I've got places to go. I've got things I've got to get done. I still have a few things left before I go to the cross. I have to. That's why I'm here. And still, Jesus allowed an inconvenient moment into his life. And he stopped. Having compassion is very inconvenient. Do you know why? Because it requires you to work with other people. And people are the most inconvenient thing on the planet. <laughs> Period. Relationships are inconvenient. Look at your spouse and say you're inconvenient. <laughs> some, of you, some of you men are a lot wiser and you're like, I'm not saying that. <laughs> Smart. It's true though, right? Marriages are inconvenient. Kids are inconvenient. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Work is inconvenient. Can I get a hallelujah? Church is inconvenient, especially on daylight savings time. I, I interrupted your sleep and you're perfect. Weekend off. Nobody wanted to amen on that one. It got weird, didn't it? <laughs> Life is full of inconvenient people. We are inconvenient. And Jesus says, it's okay. Compassion is inconvenient. So here's the question I would have you wrestle with. Who needs you to stop for them? Who needs to come first right now in your life? Somebody might be calling out, verbally or non-verbally, and what they need is for you to just stop for them, for you to put your life on hold for somebody else, for you to put your agenda on hold for somebody else, for you to put your plans on hold for somebody else for a minute. Having compassion is inconvenient. So who needs you to stop? That's humility. If you want to be a servant, have a servant's heart, humility, sacrifice, and love, but it starts with humility. Let's talk about the sacrifice part. So the crowd rebuked them, told them to be quiet. They hollered out to Jesus all the more. Jesus stopped an act of humility. Look what he does next. And then called to them and asked them this question. What do you want me to do for you? Now that is a crazy question to ask. Let me help you understand why. The moment you ask that question, what do you want me to do for you? You are stuck with one of two responses. Okay, I'll do it. Or, just kidding, I didn't mean to ask that question. You're stuck in that, in that question. When you make that wide of a question, well, what would you like me to do for you? You either have to follow through or you have to back off. And Jesus stops as an act of humility and then in an act of sacrifice, he asks that question, what would you like me to do for you? What do you want from me? Knowing it's going to cost him something because compassion is costly. Compassion will cost you something. Now, don't just go financially. I mean, that's not where we're going with this. Sure, that might have a component to it, but not necessarily. 
Here, Jesus didn't have to spend a dime, but it still cost him something. It cost him his time, effort, energy, focus. He had to change. He's not just focused on the cross anymore. Now he's focused on these two men. All because he asked a question that he knew would cost him something. What do you want me to do for you? Having compassion is costly. So ask yourself this question. What do they need? What do they need from you? Now look at your spouse. I told you to tell them they were an inconvenience. Now look at them and say, what do you want from me? Ooh, that's a dangerous question. Be careful. <laughs> put, you in a, put you in a tough spot, doesn't it? You know, talk to your friends. What can I do for you? What do you need from me? Go to your kids and says, what would you like me to do for you? Be careful on that one. <laughs> Bosses, if you have employees, you want to just do something crazy, show up tomorrow at work and call your employees together and just say, what would you like me to do for you? Employees, show up to work tomorrow, go, talk, go knock on your boss's door and says, what would you like me to do for you today? That's a different way of living, isn't it? It's going to cost you something based on that answer. What do you want me to do for you? If you want to have a servant's heart, it takes humility, stopping for people. If you want to have a servant's heart, it's going to cost you something. There's going to be sacrifice. And ask that question, what do they need? What do they need from me? What do you want me to do for you? Seriously, you want to change your family, you ask that question in your family all the time. What can I do for you? What do you need me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Create that kind of sacrificial culture in your family and you will have a family that serves one another. Humility, sacrifice. Now let's talk through the last one, which was, if you're paying attention, half of you. Good. All right, we're on track. Love, humility, sacrifice, and love. So Jesus stopped. He called to them. He asked them a question. What do you want me to do for you? They answered back. We would like our sight. Verse 34. Jesus had compassion, splagnitzomai on them, and he touched their eyes. And immediately they received their sight and followed him. Now something happens here, and it's going to be stating the obvious. So stay with me. Because I don't want to miss it. I don't want to bypass it. I don't want you to gloss over the big idea of what just happened here, because this is a really big deal, but to help you understand it, I'm gonna need somebody. I just need a guy that will sit in this chair for me. You don't have to do anything literally other than sit. All right, you gonna sit for me? All right, you ready? Come on up. Give him a big hand. Awesome. Way to go. All right, sit right there. Whatever you do, don't say anything, don't do anything, don't move, just sit there. Can you do that? I'm a little nervous. I don't know if you can pull that off. I'm just kidding. You're going to do great. You're going to do great. All right, so blind guys on the side of the road. Remember, Jesus is leaving Jericho. He's heading to Jerusalem, so he's heading out of town, and he hears these guys calling. Don't actually say anything. Calling like, Jesus, help us, help us, help us. Have mercy on us. And what was the first thing Jesus did in an act of humility? He, he stopped, right? And the rest of the crowd rebuked him. Shh, be quiet. Don't say anything. Don't bother Jesus. But Jesus decided to turn and have a discussion with him. He asked him that question, an act of sacrifice. He said, well, what would you like me to do for you? And over the crowd, across the road, they then fire back, well, we'd like to have our sight. And here's where the act of love comes. Remember what it said? It says, Jesus, he had that compassion on them. And what was the very next act? Do you remember? Do I need to read it? He had compassion on them and he... Touched, yes, you're right. He touched their eyes. Why can I not touch his eyes right now? Like I said, this is a stating the obvious thing, so go ahead. There's a distance between us, right? It's too far. I physically can't reach him. Jesus could not reach the men. 
So again, let me ask an obvious question. What did Jesus have to do to touch the two blind men? He had to move towards them, didn't he? He had to walk all the way over to them to be able to touch them. See, compassion and truly having that kind of love and that kind of compassion requires more than just an idea, more than just that sounds good, more than just, oh, I wish I could. It's this act of stretching and moving to the people that need you. Jesus moved to the men. He stretched out, he reached out, and he touched their eyes. Now keep in mind, Jesus didn't need to touch their eyes to heal them. We have many accounts where Jesus healed people without touching them. He didn't need to be super close to them, and we have accounts of Jesus healing people that are not even in the same area as him. But Jesus felt it was important to physically move over to these men and touch them before he healed them. And here'd be my question. We don't know if these men were blind from birth or if this happened recently, but we do know because of the culture, they would have been considered an outcast. So until Jesus touched them, until that moment, I wonder when the last time that they would have been physically touched by another human being would have been. For Jesus, the act of love was saying, I'm here, I'm with you, I've got you. Before he healed them, he said, I love you. You did a fantastic job sitting there. I appreciate it. Give him a hand, guys. Great job. Thank you. Now you can go. Don't miss the distance that Jesus had to make up to get there. He didn't say, come on over and I'll take care of it. He didn't just say, oh, you're healed. Your faith has healed you, which he's done that before. In this case, he had to have moved over in order to touch him. Compassion is stretching. Stretching is uncomfortable. Stretching is difficult. It's not just wishful thinking. It's stretching. So my question to you would be, how will you reach out? Who needs you to stop? Humility. What do you need to do for them? What do they need from you? Sacrifice. What's it going to cost you? How will you be stretched? How do you need to move? How do you need to reach out? How do you need to move towards them? How do you need to impact people's lives? How do you need to move into somebody's life? I don't have the answer for that. That's between you and the Lord. That's that whole servant's prayer. Help me to see how you want me to serve today. How do you want me to reach out in love? Again, what we see is every time that Jesus had compassion, it was always moving him to someone. Compassion should always move us to serve. Splagnitsomai should always move us to serve. It's never just, oh, that's too bad. I wish there was something I could do. It moves us. It compels us. It drives us where we can't go to sleep. We stay up at night. It's what are, is full in our mind and full in our hearts. Until we just do something, we can't do everything. But there's got to be something I can do. Humility, sacrifice, and love. Who do I need to stop for? What do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you? How am I going to reach out in love? Rick Warren said, said kind of this idea of summing up how we serve God. He said this, he said, the only way you can ever serve God on earth, the only way to serve God here on earth is by serving others. So true. If you want to serve others, or if you want to serve God, you have to serve others. So I would encourage you, start thinking through what that means for you. How does that look? Is it starting with serving your family? Yes, of course, always start there. Stopping for your family. What can I do for you as my family? How do I reach out in love for my family? And then start looking at other relationships and other environments where, you're, that, where God has you. 
your friends, your extended family, your neighborhoods, your community, your workplace, your church. And there's a lot of ways for you to stop and serve out of love each and every day. I mentioned if you're serving here, man, Easter's a great time to jump into that. Just this last week, the devastation that happened in Tennessee, in Nashville, so many ways for us to begin to help. That should move us to do something. When you see the devastation, it's not, oh, I'm sorry for them. It's, no, I have splat needs, so I want to do something. If that's you, all you got to do, if you'll help me out with this, if you'll write Nashville on your card, I'll email you this week and let you know how we're responding and how you can be part of that. All right, so maybe it's just through prayer. Maybe it's through giving through some of the partners that we work with that are doing relief efforts there. Maybe it's through going on a team. We have one of our team leaders there in Nashville right now. We got another team that's gonna be set up to go here in the next week. If that's you, then write Nashville. And that's moving you to do something, write Nashville, and I'll email you this week. And then you figure out, okay, God, how are you calling me to serve? The point is we do something. When we're caught in the, between the world of selfishness, self-promotion, and selflessness, servanthood, what drives us to be like Jesus? It's that word, splagnitsomai, where we are moved to serving others. If you were here last week, we gave everybody a ping pong ball. I'm gonna talk about this every single week, so get used to it. Because you can't start the game of ping pong until you have another person. Once you have the other person, then what do you do to begin the game? You serve the ball, that's right. So the ping pong ball is simply a reminder to serve first. The game cannot begin until somebody goes first, until somebody serves. May that be you and me. May we serve first. So on your way out, if you don't have one yet or if you've lost it, grab your ping pong ball, put it in your car, put it at work, put it at home, grab a bunch of them if you need to have a lot of reminders. I'm great with that. How will you serve first today and tomorrow and the day after that? Because if we're most like Christ when we serve, we're just following in his footsteps. Because he loved us first. He went first, First John tells us. We love because he first loved us. We serve because he first served us. We have compassion. Because he first had compassion on us. May we treat others the way he's treated us. May we live our lives the way that he lived his life and how he continues to live in our lives today. There's another example of Jesus's compassion in Luke chapter 15. I encourage you to read it this week. In Luke 15, there's three different stories, parables that Jesus tells that all deal around the same thing of something that was lost and then was found. There's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, and then the final story is about a lost son. You might know it as the prodigal son story. And in that story, this son walks away from his dad. He takes his money, he takes his inheritance, and he walks away from his family, and he goes and spends it on everything he wants to. He lives his own life the way he wants to, making his own decisions, spending money on his things, totally turns his back and walks away from his father and his family and does his own thing, lives it up. After some time, he realizes that's not the life that he wants nor was intended to live. He hit rock bottom, got, hit rock bottom and got to a, a very low and dark place. And in that low and dark place, like often we find ourselves, he realized, it's time for me to go home. So he picked himself up, and he started the long, long walk home. Along that long walk home, he was reciting into his mind 
How am I going to approach my father? What am I going to say? How am I going to apologize? So he gets the speech ready. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have. Can you forgive me? Even if you can't. Like all those things that we would have running through our mind. What's interesting is what the son didn't know is what the father was doing while his son was away. While his son was away, the father every single day would go and stand out on the porch and looked in, down the road for his son. Every day he didn't see him, he'd go to bed and wake up the next day still looking down the road for his son. Hoping one day he would see his son walking back home. One day, his hope came true. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. But while he, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. That is the compassion your father has for you. The splagnizomai that is moving in him to chase after you no matter how far you've been, no matter what you've done. He runs after you still with humility, sacrifice, and an unconditional love that we cannot comprehend. That's the compassion that our Lord and Father has for us. May we have that for one another. May we serve like he served us. May we have compassion like he has had compassion on us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for loving us not the way that we deserve, definitely not for anything that we have earned, but because we are simply yours. Jesus, may we have compassion like you. May we have a servant's heart like you, full of humility, sacrifice, and love. Help us to see how you want us to serve today. Help us to be ready and willing when you call. Give us the courage to follow through with joy because we simply want to become more and more like you, the not-so-average king that came to serve, not to be served. We trust you. We put our hope back in you, maybe for the first time or maybe again and again. But every time we come to you, you run to us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.